Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Alice Page. How would I ever intimidate anyone when I sound like, get down on your knees and beg for it? I said, lick my boot! <laughs> that and more, but before that, don't forget to pitch us your scary stories for Halloween, or tell your friends or family members to pitch us their scary stories. If you're near New York, you might even be in the October 20th live show of Scary Stories, and you can pitch us anything, anytime by going to risk-show.com submissions. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is uh, the Beastie Boys behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Quick Fix. You know, those fixes that sometimes last, <laughs> sometimes not so much. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Aaron Wolf. An amazing story that he shared years ago uh, when Risk was in Boston one year. I should say that, you know, I've said this on the show before, but we would love to feature a Palestinian person on the show at some point with a similar life experience. Aaron's story is about being a Jewish man who went over, wanted to see if there was any way he could be a part of a peace process between Israel and Palestine, and, and I think it would be really wonderful if someday we could feature an Arab person or a Palestinian person with life experiences that also intersect around all that conflict, all that you know, decades-long conflict. 
So you always know where to find me. I'm at Kevin at risk show.com. But before Aaron, we're going to hear from Alice page. This was a story that was actually shared years ago at a risk and body storytelling collaboration show years back in San Francisco. So Dixie De La Tour helped us produce that show and co-hosted it with me. And Alice Page was a real treat. And so it's so much fun to look back at the story she shared. Here she is now. It's Alice Page with a story we call Call Your Mother. Francisco about two years ago and very quickly realized that this is a very difficult city to survive in and that I needed a job that would pay a lot for relatively few hours of work. I moved here for graduate school. So sex work seemed like a viable option. But I, however, had no desire to have sex with people for money or even not for money, although I did feel it was time to put these puppies to work. So a friend of mine suggested that I combine my love for misery with my desperate need for money into one profession, becoming a dominatrix. to say I was intrigued getting to yell at men for a living and those fabulous heels they wear. So the same friend found me a job opening at a BDSM co-op in Berkeley, of course, where else? And I promptly submitted an application with all the necessary requirements. Two full body length photos, a description of why I wanted to do this job. I want to kick men in the balls for a living, okay? I learned at the Folsom Street Fair that this is extremely fun. (laughs) And my available times. I received an automatic response informing me that... They had received hundreds of applications, and if they wanted me, they would contact me. So in the meantime, I decided to do some research on what exactly a BDSM co-op would entail. See, I'm originally from Washington, D.C., so I understood power play, but not quite the nuances of BDSM or how this would work in a co-op situation. Aren't co-ops for fresh vegetables, not whips? And would there be communal chores? Like, would taking out the trash take on a whole new meaning? Would I be punished if I didn't fulfill my duties? But the co-op at least provided all the gear and the training. So I began to imagine what exactly the training would involve. Proper spanking techniques, uh, safe words, appropriate levels of verbal abuse. 
I had never read Fifty Shades of Grey. Would this be required reading or absolutely not? The email also informed me that I must be available twice a week from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. 10 a.m.? Really 10 a.m.? I am not a morning person, so I'm barely just beginning to function by that time, but I had no idea that people were getting their kink on at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. That is dedication. My morning routine usually consists of brushing my teeth, getting dressed, maybe if I'm lucky, shoving some food down my throat, hopefully getting myself to work or school on time. I had never considered eating my eggs with a side of corporal discipline. And meanwhile, I was able to find the co-op website online and quickly discovered that I would in no way fit in here. All the women were 1950s, pin-up, glamorous, gorgeous, seductive, unique, kind of like Dixie here. Or like Betty. Meet Betty with an E. Betty engages in anal play, erotic role play, water play, switch play, Sissy play. I had never heard of most of this play. I didn't know what it would involve, but I did think that it kind of sounded like the most fun I'd have since my recess days had ended. So, lo and behold, a few days later, I received an email, a response email, asking me if A, I had any visible tattoos. No, we're good there, I'm Jewish. And B, if I would be interested in scheduling a phone interview. And just a few days after that, I was on the phone with a British woman who described herself as the headmistress. I'm sorry, my accent is so bad. Who promptly began yelling at me for everything I said or didn't say. Now, I'm terrified of confrontation. Yeah, I know this seems completely contradictory to becoming a dominatrix, but just hear me out. I've had breakups that have lasted for years because I'm too afraid to confront the fact that I no longer want to be in the relationship and tell them that I need out. I have conversations with people on the bus that I miss my stop for because I can't stand to tell them that I can't listen to their life story anymore. But since moving to San Francisco and living in the damn tender knob area, where I have seen more shit, literally and figuratively, than I ever care to admit, I've had to toughen up. But before I was a huge softie. So as this British headmistress snarls at me on the phone, I suddenly realize this is probably part of the test. She's trying to see how I'll react as a future dominatrix. She's breaking me in. So I suddenly shriek at her, I can't take this anymore. You can't talk to me like this. I won't stand for this type of behavior. I am shocked by my own outbursts, but I like it. I really, really like it. And apparently, so does she. Suddenly, she becomes silent, and then she says, we've been looking for someone just like you. We need someone to fill the bubbly blonde niche. Our clients are sick of the overly tattooed suicide girls. 
As she continues to rattle on about the co-op pay structure, I begin to wonder, bubbly blonde niche? I had no idea this was a thing in the dominatrix world. It seemed like an oxymoron. Bubbly blonde, dominatrix. Kacha. <laughs> but I am not a bubbly blonde. I'm a fake blonde Jewess who a complete stranger once described very accurately, I should say, as a foxy curmudgeon. <laughs> not yet since heard a better description of my personality. So I had to imagine other niches that I could fill. Awkward teenager? I know I look young for my age, but I in no way wanted to live out that not-so-distant past reality. And what could I do with this voice? How would I ever intimidate anyone when I sound like, get down on your knees and beg for it! I said, lick my boot! It's a voice that only dogs can hear and that clients would probably laugh and walk away from. And then it came to me. Nasally voice, childbearing hips, no tattoos, Jewish mother dominatrix. In you. You're never right. You're never call. You're not a lawyer or a doctor. When are you going to give me grandchildren? Write your thank you notes now! Seriously, the world needs this. So many Jewish mommy issues, it's obscene. I mean, imagine a schmuck like Mark Zuckerberg works in, who every day has to run this juggernaut of a company, who every day has to boss people around, and now it's his turn to be brought to his knees. And he begs to be dressed up like a baby and spanked for breaking with tradition and marrying a non-Jewish shiksa. I mean, imagine the guilt. Now I'll never have Jewish grandchildren. Where's your yarmulke? I'm going to drip candle wax from the menorah on you eight times. <laughs> or a nebbishy Woody Allen type who is feeling guilty for no longer keeping kosher. I would put on my babushka and let him have it. Eat your matzo balls now. Here, have another one. I said eat it. I don't care if you're hungry or not. Chicken soup is a Jewish penicillin. <laughs> My mother would be so proud of me right now. I'm lost in this reverie in the midst of my phone interview with the British headmistress when I find out that my schedule as a graduate student directly conflicts with their needs for me as a dominatrix, and I am promptly shut out. But I still carry with me this Jewish mother dominatrix persona, 
and have felt validated in my ability to simultaneously stand up to and annoy the shit out of the likes of bad boyfriends and catcallers alike. And if my career in a think tank doesn't work out, I think I found my other calling that the world truly needs. Thank you. Eat your matzo balls now! Here! I said eat it! Have another one! I don't care if you're hungry or not! Chicken soup is a Jewish penicillin! I am so disappointed in you! You're never right! You're never cool! You're not a lawyer or a doctor! When are you going to give me grandchildren? Where's your yarmulke? I'm gonna drip candle wax from the menorah on you eight times! So I have this memory. It's fifth grade. I'm in the Hawthorne Elementary School lunchroom slash gym slash auditorium. And I'm sitting at the cool kids table. I have never sat at the cool kids table. I am not a cool kid. These are like the sons and daughters of American orthodontists surrounding me. They're in like, you know, Cavaricis and like their jeans are pegged and I'm wearing Sears sweatpants with a belt. We're there for an assembly, and, and this assembly starts this like kind of leather-faced bag of smiles in a three-piece suit. He, he gets up on stage, and he's like, show of hands, can anybody name a luxury automobile? And like all around me, hands are shooting up in the air. I have no idea what a luxury automobile is, but like everybody seems to know. Like no elementary school in America has seen more fifth graders being like, oh, call me, call me. Like everyone's freaking out. I want to be the one. And he's calling on people. They're like, oh, Maserati, Lamborghini, Ferrari. Like things I've never heard of, but the longer I don't have my hand up, the longer it's obvious that I don't belong at the cool kids table, right? So I raise my hand, and he's like, yeah, sweatpants. And I'm like, Oldsmobile? And there's this, like, silence, and all of these fat, fucking white faces, like future closeted Trump supporters, they all just (laughs) turn towards me, you know? And then there's this seismic wave of ridicule. Just my hair's blowing back. I'm just like, you know. And this like smarm monster in the front of the auditorium is like, well, I don't know about Oldsmobile, but I'll tell you this. If you get into a brand new Jaguar, it'll change your life. And then he leads all of us to the teacher's parking lot where we're allowed to sit in brand new Jaguar cars. Setting aside for a moment, like, what the fuck was that assembly? Complete nightmare. Like, I've spent the entire year trying not to be beaten to death by a kid with perfect incisors. And now, like, some dude from Passaic is giving me the hard sell on fancy life. He's like, you know, this has fuel injection. I'm like, I don't know what that is. I'm 10. It's the moment that my desperate desire to fit in meets my latent class consciousness. And 20 years later, I'm on a bus in Tel Aviv, and I'm still wondering if I'll ever fit in. I never got cool. I never learned how to peg my jeans. I never bought a single. unironically. Like, it never happened. 
But what did happen was I found a socialist Zionist youth movement called Hashomer Atzeir. So that's a mouthful. I'll unpack it for you. Don't worry. Hashomer Atzeir is a Hebrew word. It means uh, two words. It means uh, the young guard. And basically, it was founded at the turn of the last century in Poland by a group of these sort of wild, young, inspired people. They had this idea, right, that the Jewish people as a whole was sick. There were too many intellectuals, too many thinkers, not enough doers. And so they had this idea that if we could invert the pyramid of the Jewish people through labor and through hard work, we could redeem the soul of this people that was slowly dying. And they thought that the best way to do this was through socialist syndicates, which would eventually be called the kibbutz. But at the time, it was something different. It was these intimate groups of young people that would go up into the mountains and they would talk and share their deepest feelings, their deepest hopes, their deepest fears. It wasn't enough to share economically, right? You had to share something spiritual. They were hanging out with people like Martin Buber, and they were thinking that that if they could just open up enough and share enough, then something would happen. And the Zionist part, that's the socialist part, the Zionist part was these were not religious people at all. They thought, look, the entire world is focused on Israel and the Middle East, Our great major Western religions are focused on Jerusalem. If we can go there and unite the Jewish proletariat, create the Jewish proletariat, and then unite them with the Palestinian proletariat in this intimate emotional revolution, then something like a Messiah will dawn on earth. And when I was like 12, I was like, that is awesome. Also, my friend's dad told me that the girls at Hashemar had really big boobs, and I was like, revolution! And 20 years later, I'm on this bus in Tel Aviv, and I'm the head of the national branch of this international revolutionary movement. Our goals have sort of changed. Like, we've kind of, like, given up on redeeming the entire Jewish people, and we're, like, focusing on, like, 80 to 90 middle-class Jewish families in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. (laughs) But it's a start. You know, it's a start. And we're, like, you know, the whole, like... Jewish proletariat and the Palestinian proletariat uniting in some sort of like big peace horror, like stop killing each other for five minutes and see if we can breathe the same air. That's, we'll settle for that. But what we haven't given up on at all is this idea that if we can do it together, if we can do it intimately and honestly and emotionally present with each other in these small little groups, and if we can do it in Israel, where all of our minds are focused, the, the left, the right, the center, the religious, the non-religious, they all think something's wrong there. If we can move the needle of justice in Israel, one tick towards righteousness together, it won't be a Messiah, right? We don't think that anymore. But like, maybe there'll be this like little socialist viral thing. It'll be like a, a love virus, like a socialist herpes. It'll just like spread around the world and some change will happen. And I'm on this bus with 10 other young American revolutionary middle-class white kids. And, and we're, we're going to this commune in Yafo. Yafo is sort of the Brooklyn of Tel Aviv, um, but like less kids with like suspenders and more like Arab families that have been there for a thousand years. <laughs> Same mustaches, though. <laughs> And Yafa was kind of beautiful. It's incredible. It's dense. And there are these colonial mansions that are separated by high concrete fences. And there's minarets and, and old shacks sort of squished in between the big buildings. And it's nighttime. And I'm excited. I've been to this commune. We're going to this, this commune in Yafo that I've been to before that's filled with, like, I don't know what you're thinking when I say commune. Like, here, a commune, like, makes their own sassafras beer. Like... <laughs> 
in Israel, this is like 10 beautiful, hardworking Israelis that have dedicated their lives to social justice. And they're sharing their money so that they can work in nonprofits and try to change the society from the inside. And we pull up next to this centuries-old bakery. And across the street is the head of the commune, this guy, Lior. And I am madly in love with Lior. I'm a straight guy, like, it's a, it's a spectrum, but I'm, like, mostly straight, but this guy, like, I, I fucking love him. I want to be him. I want him to like me. I want him to want me to be next to him. Like, like he's, he's amazing. He's tall. He's dark. He's got um, curly hair, and he's kind of always wearing combat jackets and, like, you know, like, tight jeans, and he has this, like, surgically implanted silk scarf that he wears all the time. He looks like if Che Guevara got a gift certificate to Urban Outfitters for his bar mitzvah, you know, like. <laughs> I'm so, you know, I walk up to him and he gives me this hug and I'm titillated. I'm like, validate me. And, <laughs> and he leads us down this alleyway towards this old colonial mansion where his commune is. And as we're walking, it's really dark. There's no lights anywhere. And there's, the ground is kind of like um, sort of a cross between dirt and pavement. It's a broken up hard top. And, and, and there's trees over the alleyway. And I'm having this fantasy. I'm like, maybe this time Lior's going to ask me to join his commune. And I start picturing it, you know? Like, he'll come up to me, and he'll take me aside, and there's this girl there, and she's got, like, long black hair and freckles, and she plays the cello. She's like Lior with girl parts, and she'll, like, take me aside, and we'll, like, share a gitan, you know? And she'll be like, you know, the revolution comes from the body as well. <laughs> and I have a girlfriend, but, like, I'd be willing to, like, you know... She's really hot. And so I'm like drifting away into this fantasy. I'm like, we're going to change the world through love, you know? So when the first rock hits my leg, I don't really process it. It just sort of doesn't make sense. Like I'm this like peacenik. We're like walking quietly for justice. And the rock hits my leg. And then another rock hits my backpack. And then another one hits the ground next to me. And I turn around. And there are these two kids, two Palestinian kids, uh, probably like 10 and 13, and they each look at me and they smile, and then they reach down to the ground and pick up a rock, and then they throw it at me. And then they throw another and another. And then one hits Zach, and Zach's family left Uzbekistan for America because the Russian kids would call him Jew and throw rocks at him. So the rock hits Zach, and something snaps. And he just starts screaming and running at these two kids. And I go running after him. I'm like, Zach, stop. And he's, he's an animal. He's screaming, and they're screaming. And the young kid picks up the shell of an air conditioner, this like husk of metal, and throws it at Zach. And then the 13-year-old kid takes out a knife. And I grab Zach in this bear hug, and he's sobbing. He's an artist, and he doesn't know what he was about to do. But he was about to do something. He's crying and shaking, and the kids are screaming, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And then the kid with the knife steps towards us, and Lior comes running out of nowhere and pushes the kid with all of his weight, all of the force of a 30-year-old man into a 13-year-old body, and he shoves him to the ground. The kid goes flying. The knife goes flying. Then the two kids scramble away and disappear. And Lior says, we have to go right now. 
And so I take my guys and Lior and we walk really quietly down this alley towards his old colonial mansion. When we get there, it's not warm and inviting. It's dark because we don't want to turn the lights on and we're scared. And it has these massive windows that surround the living room that look out onto this walled-in garden. Normally that would be beautiful right now. It's terrifying. I have that battery acid taste of fear in my mouth. There's people talking in Arabic really loudly everywhere and there's shadows moving around the windows. And I have this like impossible thought. Like, I cannot understand what's happening. How did this happen? We're the good guys. We're here to try to do good for them. How come these 10-year-olds don't know that? And I'm angry and scared and confused. And then there's a knock on the door, pounding on the door. And Lior goes out into the night and disappears for a while. And then he comes back and he walks straight up to me and he says, you have to go outside and you have to apologize. And I say, for what? And he says, you, you have to apologize, man. The kids are out there and the family's out there. You have to apologize. You got to tell them that it was you. And I said, I didn't do anything. I don't know what I'm supposed to, I don't understand. And he says, Aaron, I live here. I have to live here. I have to be here tomorrow. You have to be the one. You have to go outside and apologize. And I look at this man that I love. And I know that I can be for him what he needs me to be in this moment. So I go. I go outside, and there's the two kids, and then there's their brothers, and then there's their father, and then all of the uncles, and then off to the side, led to the front, is an old man, their grandfather, and he's wearing a kafia. He looks like a painting in my grandfather's house. And Lior takes me by the hand, and he says, this is the man that hurt your grandchildren. This is the man that scared them. This is the man that pushed them to the ground. And I say, sorry. And I look at Lior like, is that good? And he doesn't give me anything. And I don't know what I'm saying sorry for. So I start saying sorry for all the things that I do know. I say sorry that I'm Jewish. I'm sorry that I don't live there. I'm sorry that I'm not going to wake up there tomorrow. I'm sorry that, that I'm an outsider, that this is not my place, that, that, that I have no idea of anything in the world anymore. I'm sorry. I say it over and over again. I say it in English, and then I say it in Hebrew, and I wish I could say it in Arabic, but I don't know how. And finally, the grandfather nods. He's satisfied. And the uncles nod, the father nods, the brothers nod, and then these two kids, they nod, and then they all leave. And I go back inside shaking, like I just avoided some sort of like biblical retribution, you know. That night, Lior takes me aside with the girl with the cello and the long hair, and he says, Aaron, I want you to join the commune. He says that I can experience this thing called Hagshema Atzmit, self-realization. I can experience what it means to live my life the way I believe that I should live it. And the girl says to me, there is an intimacy that you do not know when it's just between a man and a woman. There is an intimacy of community that is greater than that. And I think about that. And I think about that table in fifth grade, and I say no. I want to say that I'm scared. I want to say that I don't, I'm not ready to make that kind of change. I want to say that I don't know what it means to live in a place where a fundamental necessity of survival is the ability to push a 13-year-old with a knife to the ground and then get somebody else to apologize for it. 
If that's not a summary of what that fucking situation is, at that moment, I don't know what is. I want to say all that. I don't know how to say all that. And so instead I say, I have a girlfriend. We're going to move in together. I think we're going to get married. And then one more time that night, I say, I'm sorry. Thanks. Yeah, when I was only 17 I could hear the angels whispering So I drove into the woods And wandered aimlessly about Until I heard my mother shouting through the fog It turned out to be the howling of a dog Or a wolf to be exact The sound sent shivers down my back But I was drawn into the pack And before long They allowed me to join in and sing their song So from the cliffs and higher still Yeah, we would gladly get our fill Howling endlessly and shrilly at the dawn This is Risk. This is Blitz and Trapper behind me now. And we just heard from Aaron Wolf, who you can find on Twitter, at Aaron Wolf. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And like I was saying before, you know, we would really love to one day be able to feature the perspective of... A Palestinian person, an Arab person from around that part of the world who have life experiences in and around all that conflict over there. Uh, I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com in case you happen to know anyone like that who might be interested in being on the show. Also, are you in Seattle or Portland? Pitch us your stories and you might be included in our Seattle show Our Seattle show is November 18th, or our Portland show, our Portland show is November 19th. Pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions. Also, you can just go to risk-show.com slash tour if you want to attend either of those shows. And if you become a member over at patreon.com slash risk or raise your donation, you will have so many tons of bonus content to choose from. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from our August live show at Caveat in New York City. It comes to us from someone who had never shared a story on stage before or at any sort of storytelling show. This is Adrian Yankovic with a story we call Connecting. Hello. Uh, So COVID got real for me right around the time that everything in New York City started shutting down, which 
included my job as a special ed teacher. I was 23 at the time and living alone, and overnight my apartment transformed from this place where I could recharge from my friends and my students and my coworkers to a place where I was just mind-numbingly alone and staring at the walls. And I found myself aware of a desire for a deeper human connection. So I, I jumped onto Tinder. <laughs> I matched with Patrick, a cute hipster who wore vintage clothes and went to art museums and did improv. And I was interested in him right away. We got to chatting and set up a time to uh, FaceTime. So, uh, yeah. So that night came. I had my eyeliner looking good, and I was wearing this shirt for the friends at home. It's uh, modest, but you can still tell I'm kind of stacked. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's true. <laughs> Feel free to buy me a drink. <laughs> uh, so, and then right on time, my phone's buzzing. So I like, you know, hold my phone from the flattering angle and I answer it. And then I see Patrick and he's got like boyish smile and rosy cheeks and he's got a nice jawline and he's got a beanie. And um, immediately he's like, oh my God, you're even more beautiful than in your photos. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> because, you know, I didn't, even, I didn't even do anything yet and he already likes me. So I got this boost of confidence and we have this conversation and I learn a lot more things that I like about Patrick. Like, he's a PhD student in communications and he's a TA with the ultimate professional goal of working with adolescents who are struggling with addiction. He has alcoholism in his, his family, so he doesn't drink. And I have alcoholism in my family, so I think like that's hot and like vulnerable of him to share and stuff. Um, and also... Like, working with kids is such an important part of my identity, so I'm really attracted to his having similar inclinations. And we're vibing, you know, we like similar music, movies, he really loves his friends. And then after about an hour of talking, he says, there's something so specific about you. You have this self-awareness and emotional intelligence and sharp sense of humor, and those are the qualities I find most attractive in a person. Do you want to do this again sometime? Up until that point, I was thinking like, you know, we're mutually charming each other. But then when he says this, I'm like feeling so seen. I'm like, see more of me. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do this again. <laughs> and um, about a week after this point, I leave my lonesome apartment to go um, stay for the rest of the quarantine, I think, at my parents' house. But... Patrick and I keep texting every day and FaceTiming every night. And, you know, y'all were there, like, at the start of the pandemic, like, day to day. Really nothing was happening, but we always have so much to talk about. We talk for hours, and when we do run out of things to talk about, there's, like, gazing and, like, lip biting. And, um, and you know, like... I turn 24, and talking to him is the highlight of my birthday. He makes me a digital card with Avril Lavigne on it, whom I love. Uh, and um, we both have <laughs> we both have a family member undergoing cancer treatment, and we're like supportive of each other through that. He's a wonderful listener, and just being at home with my parents working remotely, Patrick becomes so much of my world, and. Like, we have this emotional connection without the physical proximity, so that's new. After a few months of this, 
Patrick tells me he's in love with me, and I frankly feel the same way, so I, I tell him I love him too, and he asks me to be his girlfriend, and I say yes. Um, now, I, I listened to a lot of the Savage Love cast in my formative years, <laughs> so, like, meanwhile, I got, like, Dan Savage on my shoulder, like, smell him. Like, and so I express my concerns to Patrick, like, you know, if we're not attracted to each other in person, what if we don't like how the other person smells? Um, and he's like, Adrian, I'm so confident we're going to like each other just as much in person. It's going to be an easy, natural transition. Please don't worry about it. And I'm like, comforted, but, you know, I'm really kind of like jumping out of my skin to meet my boyfriend so <laughs> so after three months of staying at my parents house I returned to New York City and we make a plan to meet for the first time just very exciting so Patrick lives in a brownstone with a bunch of roommates and they're scared of COVID which is smart um, I live alone and I'm no longer at risk of exposing my parents and my eagerness to meet uh, said boyfriend is overpowering my fear of COVID at this time. So I'm like, yeah, come over, like, please come sleep at my house. And I have this vision of us, like, brushing our teeth next to each other. It's cute. Um, and he's on board, and we're both excited. The day comes that, you know, he's going to come sleep over at my house. I'm so frantic. I'm, like, pacing around my apartment. I'm vacuuming incessantly. And then, you know, the time comes around dinner time that he, he's supposed to show up. And there's a knock on the door. So I go, and I answer the door. And my, like, racing heart kind of, like, freezes. And then I open it. And there's Patrick, the face I've been staring at for three months, now in 3D and attached to a body. And I feel my anxiety start to melt away. I like wrap my arms around him underneath his backpack straps and I'm like (laughs) 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 And uh, I like don't get any pheromones but he like smells like pancakes and that's good too. Shout out to Chip's Family Restaurant. That is my favorite pancake restaurant. Unpaid promotion, but I will accept a coupon. Um, so he smells like pancakes. And, and, that's, and I'm like, okay, like he's, he's hot. Like he smells fine. Like this sense of calm washes over me. Like this can work in person. So he steps into my apartment. There's some kissing. And then holding hands, we walk into my kitchen. And he says... I got you something. He removes his backpack and unzips it, and inside there are two bottles of wine and a six-pack of beer and, like, a handle or a fifth, I still don't know, a bottle of a liquor called Pim's Cup Number 1, for for the uninitiated. Um, And I'm confused, so I'm like, I thought you didn't drink. And he says, oh, yeah, I, like, normally don't drink. Uh, It's mostly for you, but I figured we could just celebrate our first night together. So I accept this, and um, we clink uh, beer bottles to that. And as I mentioned, it is around dinner time. So I go to, like, put dinner in the oven. 
it's potatoes, uh, Michelin star chef. Um, <laughs> and in the time between putting the potatoes in the oven and then like taking the potatoes out of the oven, uh, the evening develops in a direction that for me was unexpected. So quickly, Patrick begins slurring his words, not making much sense. He's like stumbling in the various rooms of my apartment aimlessly. I feel like I need to like spot him, like watch the credenza, you know? And, and uh, he's thrusting bottles in my face, like get on my level. And I don't want to get on his level. And then he goes and takes a nice long sitting down open door piss in front of me. Looks like he's about to nod off. So I get out my teacher voice and I say, it's time for you to go to bed. And, and he obliges. He, uh, you know, moseys into my bedroom and flops onto my bed right in, in the middle. Rude. Um, and before passing out, I hear him mutter to himself, I'm such a dick. So there's a stranger in my bed. And I leave my room and shut the door behind me, feeling cold. I walk back into the kitchen take out the potatoes, never to be eaten. I noticed that the um, bottle of Pims is totally empty, and I hadn't had any. And I'm like trying to make sense of what just happened here, thinking maybe this won't really work in person. (laughs) Um, When I hear a phone buzzing in the living room, so I go over to the phone, it's Patrick's phone, and I see he has several notifications from Hinge, And I think, well, that sucks. And then I see he has eight missed calls from Nicole, whom I recognize from his Venmo transaction history. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's how I get you. So I'm beginning to form a conclusion about what the nature of their relationship might be. When his phone starts ringing, And for the ninth time, it is Nicole. And in this moment, I know that I need to tell her what's up. And I have this, like, fear that she's going to be mad at me or that she's not going to believe me. And also this surge of power because I'm going to assert justice over this dishonest person and, like, hit this innocent stranger with a real humdinger. So I answer the phone and I'm like, hi, uh, this is Adrian. Are you dating Patrick Flanagan? Yes. He's been drinking again, hasn't he? Uh, Well, yeah. Uh, He's also been dating me for three months. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. No, no, thank you for telling me. Oh, my God. I, three months ago is when I went to stay with my family out of state. I, but we've been together for a year and a half. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry he did this to you. Uh, what else did he tell you? So I, I feel my body relax, that, you know, she's not mad at me, and she actually seems, like, really grateful and kind. And I say, well, you know, besides the having a girlfriend thing, everything else seemed true, like, He's getting his PhD in communications. He's a TA. He's 26. (laughs) Nicole (laughs) stops me. Um, (laughs) Well, 
he's not getting his PhD yet, and he hasn't been a TA for quite some time. Oh. Well, is he at least 26? Yeah. <laughs> so, in this moment that seems to stretch out, I'm pondering why he would lie about these details when Nicole continues. You know he's living in a sober home, right? And I said, oh, because that's a humdinger. And the brownstone starts to make sense. She says, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Patrick is a severe alcoholic. He's been in and out of rehab for years. We've been through so much together, so many ups and downs, so many tears, but I never expected anything like this from him. I'm so done with Patrick. And I'm like, same. Um, you know, but uh, when you come back to New York City, would you want to get coffee with me sometime? And she says, yes. So a few, <laughs> a few months pass, and then Nicole comes back to New York City, and we don't get coffee, but we get Thai food, which is even better. Um, and we discover we have more in common than just our mutual ex-boyfriend and enjoyment of Thai food. Like, um, we're both only children who insist on living alone and have social anxiety and are, like, a little bit obsessed with our parents. Hi, Mom and Dad. <laughs> um, you know, we both are generally constipated and love talking about it. <laughs> we both enjoy camp horror and getting stoned and going to the dog park. And I find that, you know, there's something very specific about Nicole. She's got, like, this self-awareness and this emotional intelligence and this sharp sense of humor. And I guess I just find that really attractive in a friend. Um, so we, we spend Thanksgiving and Christmas together. And most recently, in a very only child fashion, she came on my family vacation. And we did brush our teeth next to each other every night. Um, <laughs> So I, I went on to Tinder looking for a human connection, and I got one. Thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings behind me now. I love that song so much. And we just heard from Adrian Yankovic. First time she had ever shared a story. See, we help people workshop their stories, which is why you should pitch us. And remember, on October 20th, the Risk Live show is back at Caveat in New York City, 7 p.m. Eastern. It'll be simultaneously live streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets either for the in-person stage show or the YouTube live stream at risk-show.com slash tour. Still time to pitch us for that show, actually, if you have a scary story. Of course, your pitch can come from anywhere in the world if you can't actually be at the October 20th Risk show in New York, because we also record scary stories remotely. So look us up at risk-show.com slash submissions to pitch us. Folks, thestorystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling training and corporate workshops. That's all at thestorystudio.org. You can also hire me personally for storytelling training. You can find me at kevinallison.com. And you can find Risk's social media at Risk Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find me at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. You know what I'm going to have for breakfast? What, lemon pie? I'm going to order a big plate of blueberry pancakes with maple syrup. Eggs over easy and five sausages. Shout out to Chip's Family Restaurant. That is my favorite pancake restaurant. Chip's Family Restaurant. The best pancakes around. Forty great varieties. They'll never let you down. We got matzo balls, too. Eat your matzo balls now! I said eat it!